I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Where is home? The question gets different answers depending sort of when you ask and the time frame you ask in. It's only in the last 50 or 60 years that we got used to thinking of home as Earth. And maybe over the next 100 or so years, that could jump out another scale to where we would talk about the solar system, the whole set of stuff going around the sun, our star. And we'll find out things like, are we the only life in this particular star system? A person who's looking into that, who's totally at home in the solar system, is Carolyn Barco. Well, thank you, Stuart, and thanks to the Long Now Foundation for the invitation to come to speak to you tonight, and thank you all for being here. Um, <clears throat> just by way of managing expectations, you do know that no one really knows how to search for life, don't you? Um, <laughs> or at least people think they know, but no one agrees to the best way to do it. So um, nonetheless, I'm going to make a valiant effort to describe where we are with this issue in the opening uh, decades of the 21st century. And the very question, is there life like me elsewhere in the universe, which naturally follows from contemplation of your own existence, has to be one of the most beguiling questions that has ever arisen in the human mind. It might even be the oldest. And it certainly is a question that has transfixed us down through the ages. You could say, I think, that the attribution of events to spirits and gods represent the earliest human thoughts about extraterrestrial life. But at least in the historical record, uh, speculations about the existence of other inhabited Earth-like worlds <clears throat> first appear in the writings of the ancient Greeks uh, and here from the Greek school of atomism in the 4th century BC to consider the Earth as the only populated world in infinite space is as absurd as to assert that in an entire field sown with millet only one grain will grow. They were onto something. Um, those Greeks, the darlings of the ancient world. But many centuries later, in the Middle Ages, Christian scholars who had finally gained access to the writings of antiquity speculated on the plurality of worlds and suggested, in fact, that such worlds just might be inhabited by intelligent beings on a par with humans. But in every age, such assertions met with, uh, were vigorously challenged and, and debated Around the time of the American and French revolutions, there were great intellectual debates about life, the nature of life, the reason for life, and the possibility of life elsewhere. And by the time of the late 19th century, science fiction writers were getting into the act and creating the idea that the planets in our solar system were teeming with life. And by the middle of the 20th century, with the advent of the space age, 
and the robotic exploration of the planets, as well as the availability of giant telescopes on the ground that could survey the skies. And with the opportunities that these developments presented for science, detailed scientific investigations of extraterrestrial bodies, the answer to this question was finally within reach. And searches for alien life, both microbial and intelligent, finally began in earnest, and they continue to this day. In particular, <clears throat> the possibility of actually studying at close hand the planetary environments across the solar system was not lost on those who wrote the charter of the newly formed National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And if you examine the literature documenting the history of the civilian space program, you will find statements such as that made by the first NASA deputy administrator and aeronautical scientist, Hugh Dryden, to, in a letter that he wrote to the National Academy of Sciences dated October 20th, 1959. He offered his own suggestions about what NASA could do in studying the Earth, studying the cosmos, and examining you know, the nature of the cosmos and also the planets around the sun. But his suggestions included this. Another and very exciting philosophical basis for a space program might be to seek out extraterrestrial life. The philosophical implications of such a discovery are tremendous and surely of interest to the entire world as well as to the scientists. So nearly 40 years later, with the Cold War that initially drove us into space to begin with finally over, NASA was seeking renewed justification for the continuation of its space program. And in 1996, it laid out three basic questions to guide the next exploration era, and they are, how did the universe come to be? What is the origin of life? And is life unique to the Earth? Obviously, the questions of our origins and the existence of life elsewhere are as enthralling to us today as they were millennia ago, and that's for very good reason. Because, to begin with, there is an enormous advantage in being able to compare the biochemical underpinnings of any extraterrestrial organism with that of Earth. And in the, in the same way that we have gained by studying more than just our own planet, we've gained an understanding of the processes involved in, in uh, planetary formation and origin and development of planets and so on. <clears throat> so there's a lot of intellect, there's a lot of science to be gained from comparing, should we ever find a, a second genesis, that is, a completely independent uh, origin of life that has no connection to life originating on the Earth. And then, should we ever find terrestrial life that we could be confident was a second genesis, that would tell us immediately that life was commonplace, that it was not a bug, but a feature of the universe in which we live, and probably had occurred a staggering number of times across the 13.8 billion year history of the cosmos. And besides, wanting to know if it's just us or is life commonplace throughout the cosmos speaks to our desire to put our cosmic circumstances into perspective. Stuck as we are on some insignificant little mode of dust around an ordinary star in an ordinary galaxy among hundreds of billions of galaxies and more, it speaks to our longing to grasp the meaning and the significance of our own existence. 
Now, you all certainly will appreciate the possibility of life elsewhere, and especially intelligent life, has been historically and still is a very sensitive topic. Charles Darwin himself was very worried about publishing his Origin of Species because he was worried about the flack that he was going to get from the Church of England, and that, in fact, happened. They gave him a lot of flack. And if you work with NASA, the way I do, you become acutely aware that there are people all over the globe who expect great and almost mythical things from this agency. And so we go about this business very mindful of this and prepared, maybe braced for the day when should we ever find life elsewhere, NASA may just incur the wrath of some not insignificant segment of the population. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, but we're prepared for it, at least I'm prepared for it. And until that happens, we'll just, keep, we'll just keep doing what we do. Now, in order to search for something, uh, it helps to know what you're looking for and how to recognize it. And this gets to a very gnarly issue in this whole business, an issue that many committees of very smart and accomplished scientists have been called together over the years by NASA, by the National Academy of Sciences, to settle, to adjudicate, and that is, what is the definition of life? And I can tell you, no one individual and no committee has ever been able to do it. It turns out that it's the kind of thing you know when you see it, but other than that, it's very hard to reduce life, in quotes, to a simple description or a common set of defining characteristics that cannot be refuted by a single counterexample. Those terrestrial organisms that you and I would describe as alive if they were to walk across the stage or fly or whatever are just too diverse to fit under one definition. <clears throat> so this has made the whole thing about what we search for when we search for life actually rather difficult. Nevertheless, at the most fundamental level, the level of chemical elements and molecules that are required to make the organism, all of organisms on Earth share, that they're all biochemically identical. <clears throat> and this, it is this basic biochemical identity that strongly suggests that all of life on Earth arose from one single origin. And it is this biochemical identity that makes it even possible to find, if not a definition of life, at least some general attributes of living systems that could be useful in ascertaining first what that origin of life was, and it gives us a place to start in searching elsewhere for life. So I'm going to spend some time here talking about those attributes of life. I didn't know if all of you have just all boned up on your high school biology, but I, I was assuming you're like me and you hadn't done it for a long time. And so I'm just going to tell you the general attributes that anyone preparing a talk might put together. Okay. <laughs> Okay, the first is architecture. What is the architecture of life? Well, life is very modular. It's like Legos, okay? And it's remarkable, but a, a, a select and limited number of small molecules, they're called monomers, but think of them as building blocks, they const constitute the basic architectural elements of all living systems on Earth. And these monomers, as they develop, they join together in modular fashion to make longer and larger molecules, and guess what? They're called polymers. Get it? Mono, poly? We're so clever. And as far as 
proteins go, it's amino acids that are the building blocks of proteins. And these are linked together to fo form the biopolymers called proteins. And proteins make up more than a half of the dry mass of animals and are multifunctional. They are structural, they provide the scaffolding of living organisms, our muscles, our hair, our nails, cartilage, tendons, all of that is made of proteins. And proteins are also functional in, in metabolism. They, are, they uh, serve the role of enzymes, serving to accelerate chemical reactions within an organism. There are over 200 amino acids, but all of life on Earth uses only 22. Uh, and we have to ingest nine of them, actually. Our body makes the rest. So when your mother used to tell you, you better eat your proteins, she actually knew what she was talking about. Proteins also are the shapeshifter molecules. I forgot to show you this, but is this a pointer? This is a pointer. So amino acids, and they make peptides, long linear chains, and then they make proteins, and proteins, um, they fold, they're long, they're gooey, they're, they have almost no internal structure. Uh, but they can get very big and they fold in complex ways. Um, then we get to DNA, which are, is a nucleic acid. This is the famous double helix. Um, and DNA is made out of building blocks called nucleotides. And these are the information encoding molecules uh, that form two rungs of a, a, a they form the rungs of a ladder. Uh, and you pro and well, let me before I get that, if you uncoil, the DNA molecule, you get something that looks like a ladder. This is really challenging. I need a lot of hands here. So here are the, the rungs of a ladder, the rails, I guess they call These are the rungs, excuse me. These are the rails. So each rail is made out of um, a string of sugars, okay? And then attached to that is a phosphate group. It's identical on either side. And it's the rungs and the way they bond that form uh, the the, the attachment, and they are the ones that convey the information. The arrangement of them is, inf is uh, information encoding. And the success of DNA as the information encoder from generation to generation and so on is down to this periodic structure uh, and persistent structure. Its form is not altered when you remove one of the nucleobases and put in a different one. And it's not, even it's Physical and chemical properties are not altered when you do that. And if, it, if those properties had altered, it wouldn't serve as the, the molecule that serves as the templatizer, if you will. So it's very unlike proteins, which, as I said, well, they can collapse when one of its components, one of their components are altered. Um, <clears throat> and then we get to, <laughs> we get to, um, no, we're not there yet. We get to carbohydrates, which are polymers made out of sugars. You know that. <clears throat> That's what makes us fat. <laughs> You'd rather not know it. I'd rather not know it, too, but that's the truth. Uh, and carbohydrates are part of DNA, as you saw. DNA consists of sugars, uh, and they are part of cell membranes, and they're also the sources of energy and required for metabolism. And then there are the lipids or the fatty acids. They don't technically form polymers, but they join together too. They don't dissolve in water, which is a critical feature. And so they are the compounds that make up our cell walls. Okay, And this is obviously critical for maintenance of your body. So when the food industry tells you to go on a low-fat diet, don't listen to them. We need fats. They are essential. <clears throat> good, good. 
I guess that's someone who works for the, uh, the, the fat industry, I guess. <laughs> Actually, I, I could use this moment to just rail against the sugar industry, who's the real, uh, the real culprit here. Okay, it's the carbohydrates who are the enemies, not the fats. Okay, anyway, so continuing, we have biogenic elements, an intriguing and significant aspect of terrestrial life uh, architecture is that the building blocks themselves are made of only a few elements, and you all remember this. Yes, you remember this. This is the periodic table. Uh, out of the 90 elements that occur in nature, Life is made predominantly, vastly predominantly, of only a few, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur. 98% of the mass of living organisms consists of these elements. Other elements are present. You have calcium in your bones. You need magnesium and potassium for cellular function and so on. But it's only a few basic elements that are important for life on Earth. So earthly life has selected a very small percentage of all the available atoms to make its basic collection of simple molecules and utilizes only, uh, or makes only a small fraction of all possible building blocks out of them. And this is another fact. I hope you see where I'm getting uh, in all this. this is another fact we'll, come, we'll return to later when I talk about what it is we go look for. Uh, another interesting property in architecture is chorality. And chorality is the property um, <clears throat> that uh, basically refers to symmetry. You have molecules that are symmetric, uh, and these molecules would look like their mirror image. So H, uh, water, H2O, is one such molecule. CO2 is a symmetric molecule. But there are some molecules which are not symmetric. They would not look like their mirror images. And think here, we have this for you, okay? But you can just look at your hand. Okay, imagine these are atoms and this is a molecule. Okay, these are all the same as this, but you have one atom here, you have one atom here. They are chemically identical, but they have a different handedness. It's called chorality. Okay, and it turns out all living organisms on Earth utilize and construct biopolymers of only one handedness. Okay, earthly life uses only left handed amino acids and right handed sugars. And it cannot make use of the other types of molecules because they just don't fit. It's just a geometry problem. They don't fit. Uh, and if a substance or some environment in the natural world that contains no life but has a predominance of one-handedness in its molecules, over time, processes will happen to equalize it. Eventually, you'll get a mixture that's got 50% right, 50% left. Um, <clears throat> so a preference for chiral molecules and one-handedness is a feature of terrestrial organisms that, again, we'll return to later. And then a final aspect of architecture are, uh, of course, cells. cells separate, a cell separates itself from the environment and regulates its communication with the environment. Uh, it's, it's a way to... Um, form a cocoon where it can maintain its own environment, like you want to air condition your house, for example. That's what cells do. Cells are made out of lipids. The cell walls are made out of lipids, as I just said. Um, <clears throat> and uh, lipids would have been available in an environment. They readily form vesicles. Just drop some oil into water, and you could see that for yourself. So you can imagine that sequestering in one place, for example, nucleic acids and proteins was a critical step 
in uh, a step towards life. Now, another attribute of, attribute of life after we're discussing architecture is uh, reproduction. Reproduction occurs because of a cyclical feedback or feedback control system in which information contained in the genetic polymers is used to direct the synthesis of catalytic polymers or proteins, and in turn, those proteins uh, are used or take part in the synthesis of the genetic polymers. And during growth, this entire system reproduces itself. But reproduction is not perfect. That's where we get up to evolution and adaptability through mutations. Reproduction is not perfect because mistakes are made, they're called mutations, and they result in the organism having slightly different characteristics. And the vast majority of mutations that occur are not helpful, they're not beneficial, and so the new organism dies, or it doesn't live long enough to reproduce. And in that sense, the mutations are not successful, and they don't live, and you don't see them in the genome anymore. But in rare circumstances, the new properties that are conveyed to the organism by the mutation uh, <clears throat> allow the organism to compete for nutrients and otherwise adapt better to its environment. And those organisms live, and they get to reproduce, they pass on their gen genetic information, and this is the process of natural selection. The fittest get to survive, and evolution occurs. So this is evolution working at the behest of natural selection. And then another uh, attribute is metabolism. This is the property of an, the organism has to exchange materials with its environment for its energy needs, for example. And it involves the breakdown of materials, conversion of the products to energy, and the attendant construction of materials it needs to live, and also the elimination of waste materials. Earthly life employs a chemical metabolic process that is physically contained within a cell. And then there's um, <clears throat> the presence of a solvent. Uh, I should have said something about energy sources. Wait, there, that comes next, so I got this out of order. Um, so solvent, the chemistry underlying bi biology on Earth is a solvent, uh, is the solvent liquid water. And water is a polar molecule, so it can dissolve, easily can dissolve substances. It's why it's used for washing. You could even wash to some degree without soap because of the polar nature of water. Uh, and it provides a handy way for complex molecules to be broken down into smaller components because of that, that aspect of it. Uh, it can also <clears throat> turn elements into ions. You can dissolve sodium chloride in it. You get sodium ions, chloride ions, uh, and those are needed for cellular function. But it also serves as a medium within which chemical reactions can take place more readily. Materials can diffuse around in it. They can meet up with each other more easily than if one substance was sitting on a rock and another one was sitting on top of another rock and they were waiting for a wind to come along. Um, that's not so easy, but water makes mingling, you know, dating and mating makes it possible. <laughs> and then uh, energy sources. <clears throat> For earthly life, there are two main sources of free energy. One, of course, is sunlight, and organisms have uh, evolved to make direct use of sunlight, but there's also chemical energy, and, and this is, you don't utilize sunlight at all. All the energy is chemical, and we found in the 1970s entire ecologies, new ecologies on the Earth, some literally living miles underground and some thriving in hellish conditions around exceedingly hot hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. And these organisms were living off minerals and other chemical compounds that were emerging from the seafloor in hot fluids. 
And the biological cycles that underlie these ecologies are, are basically an exploitation of thermodynamically favorable chemical pathways that already existed in the environment and the organisms adapted to them. And when I say chemical pathways, favorable chemical pathways, I mean pathways that are not energy neutral and they're not energy consumptive, but they're energy rich. So the organism can, um, can derive energy from, uh, from adapting to it. <clears throat> so these are the main features of earthly life that we can you know, get our heads around. They don't constitute the components of a strict, all-encompassing definition, but as a collection, they paint broad, a broad picture of what life on Earth is all about. And they help us, they give us guidelines in what we might look for in, uh, in searching for life. Now, in the planetary exploration program, the practical goal from the start, way back in the beginning, was to determine the physical chemical properties of all the accessible bodies in the solar system and then single out those places that, that have what has come to be called habitable zones, those locales that meet the basic requirements for supporting and maybe even initiating extraterrestrial life. And because we are a long way from understanding how alien life might present itself, that is, life with an entirely different biochemistry, outside of a few basic universal properties that are based more in physics than on chemistry, like disequilibrium, that's a, a main physical property that has to be there in an environment or life does not, does not uh, sustain itself. Aside from, <clears throat> from that, NASA has been focused on the search for life as we know it, okay? because that's what we know how to recognize. Uh, it's in our present state of ignorance, it's not an unwise course of action, uh, though I think we'd all agree the most interesting type of life to find would be life that was completely different than life as we know it. Uh, it would allow us, as I said earlier, that opportunity to contrast and compare and find out what's necessary for the origin of life and what was contingent. So for some time now, the mantra at NASA has been follow the water because if you've just seen, as you've just seen, it is the solvent for terrestrial life. Um, <clears throat> by the way, this issue, the issue of looking for alien life, uh, though difficult, is not going unaddressed. We don't, we don't make a big deal of it. It's not our main thrust of, of um, activity in planning missions to the planets. But there are places where people are trying to grapple with what alien life might be like. There is work being done, for example, by organic chemists in laboratories where they're attempting to reproduce some of the processes involved in life's chemical machinery by using molecules that are different than those used by earthly life, such as encouraging the creation of molecules that can carry genetic information that are not DNA, actually trying to create synthetic biology. And also, in the last 40 years or so, there have been efforts to try to understand the process of the evolution of living systems in terms of growing levels of complexity. And this is the kind of examination that you can actually do on a computer. And this I happen to find most fascinating. Um, this is an area where the general attributes of living systems and even non-living physical systems can be reproduced, at least in the abstract, on a computer by beginning with very, very simple initial conditions and following very simple rules for the evolution of the system. And I'm going to show you some examples <clears throat> of what I'm referring to. And they come from a book written uh, 
by the main developer in this area of work, Stefan Wolfram. He wrote it in 2002. He's also, incidentally, the guy who invented the, the uh, computer language Mathematica. Okay, so he's a formidable guy. Uh, and he just started with something very simple. Imagine a, a graph paper with a grid. And on one row, you put a black, you color in a black square. And then you ask, okay, I want to move from that square down to the next row of, of now blank squares. And I just want to employ simple rules for how I colorize the squares in the row below the first one. And I'm just going to use nearest neighbor rules. I'm going to say, well, the one below the black is going to be this is in a two-color, black or white system, is going to be black if the neighbor to the left is white and the neighbor to the right is white, but it's going to be white if the neighbor to the left is white, but the neighbor to the right is black, and those kinds of things. So he's got a set of rules of what happens in the row below. And <clears throat> he started out in the beginning with very, very simple rules, and it's astonishing what happens as he just goes down and down and down and creates patterns. So here is his rule number 30 in his book, uh, A New Kind of Science. I think that's what it's called. Um, this is a, what he's called a two-color cellular automaton, uh, and it exhibits both organized and random structures, as you can see. And you, it, it starts out with an asymmetric rule, um, but you could see very organized structure on the left and random structure on the right. Okay, and then he adds three colors. He allows for gray, uh, and this is um, a three-color example, and it's 9,000 steps, and each column is 3,000 steps, and you can see he just gets these very ornate, in fact, almost artistic patterns, and it continues, and it continues, and then it suddenly stops out of nowhere, no one told it to do anything. It's just, it's just following these simple rules, and then it ends up with these simple repetitive patterns that uh, just keep going. They're stable, they don't change, and they just keep going. So the point here is that the growing complexity that we see in the evolution of life on Earth and peaking in the highest forms of life, if I may say so, in particular with an organism, that can reflect on the means by which it came into existence, uh, may be nothing more than the natural outcome of, of the mechanism Darwinian evolution working at the modular and molecular level, but working with the building blocks of terrestrial life, the few biopolymers, and following simple rules that instruct the chemical system how to go from one generation to another for billions of years. Um, and this fascinates me because what really is the most fascinating thing about life is how complex, how finely tuned it is, how sophisticated it is. And of course, you might think it was cre created by a divine being, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. You can get complex patterns on a computer with very simple rules. I might mention more of these items later. <clears throat> okay, so when it comes to looking for life in the solar system, the most straightforward thing we can do, and it's actually not that straightforward, is to seek habitats that would resemble those on Earth and could support life as we know it, while also being alert and mindful of the possibility that we might confront an alien type of life wherever we go. So what are the factors? Uh, so that means a search for life, as NASA manifests it, uh, is a search for habitats. And um, <clears throat> what are the factors to consider in our search uh, in our search, besides looking for those places that have liquid water. Okay, so um, 
I said liquid water already, but we also, there's organic. So we just said life on Earth is made of organic materials. Uh, there are simple, there's a handful of elements that go into organic materials. If we're searching for life that might be biochemically similar to us, it makes sense to search for those particular elements and molecules. Uh, other considerations are energy sources, okay? Biousable energy, or sunlight and chem chemical energy. I just mentioned that. Um, <clears throat> Energy is needed to maintain disequilibrium. So if we go to a place and we find there's no free energy available, it wouldn't be a good, uh, a good choice to, um, to search for, for life. And then there's another issue of longevity. If you want to talk about the origin of life, then we need to find those places where the ingredients that I just mentioned and the habitable in nature of the environment has been around long enough for life to get started. Unfortunately, we don't know how long it took life to get started. Um, it surely occurred, I mean, it surely occurred on Earth. We think it occurred somewhere between the time that the surface of the Earth became quiescent enough after its accretion of material from the solar nebula, after it had, for millions, hundreds of millions of years, had material raining down on it while it was growing, uh, but at some time, that tailed off. So at some point, it became quiescent to have bodies of water on it that weren't boiled away with the next impact. Uh, and between that period of time, uh, and then we know when the first fossils appeared. The first fossils that we're confident of are at least the most famous ones. I'm sure there's somebody out there who knows more about this than I do. But 3.8 billion years ago is the date of the oldest fossils um, stromatolites. These are pillows, uh, these are organisms or communities of organisms, something like coral that used to live in shallow seas, uh, and right now the most famous fossils are in Western Australia. So in the interval between when we think the Earth became quiescent, although that is being hotly debated now, so I even hesitate to give you a number, but between that time and the time of the first fossils is when we think life arose on Earth. Um, unfortunately, like I said, we don't know very much about when that happened. Uh, but in looking for habitable zones, the, this criterion is actually treated quite seriously. A small body of water on the surface of a planet like Mars, let's say, that was created by an impacting comet and therefore wouldn't last very long because eventually, even though it might be very voluminous, eventually over time it would evaporate. We wouldn't consider that as being a place viable for the origin of life. We'd have to have water that stuck around for a while. Um, <clears throat> and then other considerations, life different from earthly life. Um, instead of water, some possibilities. Instead of water as the solvent, maybe there could be another liquid that is the solvent. Um, and then another universal feature of the genetic uh, molecule, it has been argued, and a paper has just come out in Astrobiology Journal describing this, um, another, the feature of the genetic molecule that actually gives it, it its persistent shape is the fact that the phosphate group that I pointed out to you, these things are actually charged, and they have similar charges, so they actually repel each other. Now, the bonds holding the molecule together are strong enough to overcome this, but the fact that they, they repel each other actually stretches out the molecule and, in some sense, keeps it rigid, um, and and allows it to form its templating, templating uh, function. But the suggestion has been made that any universal, uh, that any genetic polymer, do even, 
irrespective of the underlying biochemistry, should function in this way. If it has a molecule that is passing on genetic information, that must be a feature of it that would apply in any biochemistry. So maybe we should go looking for that. Just carry an instrument that could go sample some water in some environment and just check to see, are any of these types of molecules, they're called polyelectrolytes, are any of them there? So people are thinking about um, how to search for life that might not be like ours. And then there's the practicality always of acquiring samples. At NASA, it is a hard and cold fact for us. We can dream about all the wonderful things we like to do, but when the rubber meets the road, we got to put an instrument on a spacecraft. We're going to launch it way the hell away from here. We're not going to bring it back into the shop if something goes wrong. We got to know what we're doing. And so there's hard and fast practicalities. One of them in this business is you have to acquire a sample. So you have to go to the places where it's easiest to, uh, to get a hold of a sample of the environment that you could, uh, you could test. How easy is it to access the habitable zone you want to study? So <clears throat> after all of that, what environments are we considering now in 2017 after we've spent 60 years exploring the solar system and the last 27 exploring the Saturn, well, the last 13 exploring the Saturn system? Clearly in our solar system, there is um, only one body that fits the old-fashioned habitable zone requirement. It used to be you'd look for the distance from a star um, over which liquid water could exist on the surface. But that all changed in the 1970s when a large subsurface biosphere on a planet was found and it was bolstered uh, once we began that idea that you could have a biosphere underneath the surface was bolstered when we began exploring the outer solar system. And it started with Voyager in the 1980s when it became clear that we could solve the water requirement not on the surface, but underneath, uh, within bodies, if the body were undergoing strong enough tidal forcing and then tidal flexing from its parent body, its host planet, or sufficient internal ra radioactivity to melt uh, the ice that the bodies in the outer solar system are made of and produce liquid water. So this was a paradigm shift, uh, that there could be ecologies within bodies as well as on the surface that greatly increased the potential habitable zones in our solar system. So where are they? Uh, there are <clears throat> there are a handful of them across the solar system. I'm only going to mention the, the big four. Uh, I hope I get through these in the length of time I have. Uh, you probably know about them already. They are, drum roll, they are Mars, Europa, Titan, and Enceladus. And these are worlds with past or present liquids either on the surface or within. So we start with Mars. Mars is the only... Um, <clears throat> the only planet right now that has a sustained program of robotic exploration that's devoted to it. It's been clear for some time now, going back to the 1970s, that liquid water once flowed on the surface of, of Mars. I don't know, maybe only the older people in the audience remember Viking landing on the surface of Mars in 1976. It's, it irks me to no end when people, young people, think the first time we ever landed on Mars was in 1997, with what a Pathfinder or with the Mars Exploration Rovers. We did this back in 1976 before you were born. <laughs> okay? And we found that water once flowed on Mars, not by chemical. This is, this, uh, we didn't rove, so there wasn't a lot of chemical 
stuff going on, but we could see in the images, you could see here uh, features that obviously looked like they were created by a flowing liquid and the only possibility, the only plausible co uh, possibility was water. Um, and so now we think that there was a time probably a billion years ago when uh, it was warmer, warmer and Mars had, um, had substantial liquid water. <clears throat> um, but the liquid water now, for the most part, seems to be all gone, at least from the surface. Mars is presently in its ice ages, and so a more appropriate guideline for Mars might be follow the ice and not follow the water. Uh, and we know there's lots of it on Mars. It's mixed in with the soil, it's at high mid-latitudes and poleward. But what about organics? Organics have to be there if we're talking about our kind of life. But the surface conditions on Mars are very toxic to organic materials. They're easily destroyed by ultraviolet radiation, and there's oxygen in the atmosphere that oxidizes them, so it destroys the organics. Uh, so if there are, are lots of organics on the surface, then um, it means two things. It means either they're organic materials that were delivered on the backs of meteorites, Meteorites have organic materials, they have amino acids in them, and things like that. <clears throat> but organic-rich meteorites only have about 30% of organics by mass. Um, so if, uh, oh, and the other possibility is that you had vigorous biological activity that was creating organics. Those are the only two possibilities. Um, but if you find uh, a lot of organics, you might assume it was the result of present-day activity because the, um, the meteoritic material is, not a, uh, <clears throat> is only, like I said, a few percent. Did I say 30%? I meant to say 3% by mass. <laughs> so at the moment, we have on the surface um, the Curiosity rover. And it's at the surface in Gale Crater. It's making lots of measurements of the surface. But a sad truth about this mission is the following, that before Curiosity even got to Mars, and after the mission was all designed, instruments were decided, designed, built, and so on, another mission at Mars called Phoenix found a salt called perchlorate on the surface of Mars that, the good news is, it allows, it suppresses the freezing temperature of water, and it allows uh, sporadic water to exist. And I don't know if you remember, but there was an observation of gullies on the surface of Mars. And these were watched during the course of a Martian year, and it was found that they seasonally appeared and disappeared. And it was found that they are really the result of water coming out of the layers in the rock and flowing down the surface. So people got very excited about this. But then it was remind, people were reminded of the perchlorate on the surface. Perchlorate is saltier than the saltiest environment we have here on the Earth. The saltiest environment on the Earth, at least that anybody's found, is a, a pond in Antarctica called Don Juan Pond. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the amount of salinity it has, but it is so saline that living organisms can't live in it. Well, perchlorate is many times more saline than that. So perchlorate on the surface of Mars, and it's distributed all over the place, means that if there's water on the surface of Mars, there can't possibly be anything living in it. So, so what's happened is now that the, look, people, the Martian community, I think, is turning to the idea that not looking for extant or living life, they're looking for fossilized life. They're looking for the environmental conditions um, that 
might have been uh, habitable to life in, in ancient times. So they're looking for those places where there's compelling evidence of, let's say, ancient hydrothermal springs and looking for fossils. It's not too promising for biochemistry. And also one thing that's very unsatisfying about Mars is that we know there's been a healthy exchange of materials between Mars and Earth. So you could never really know if you found life on Mars, if it was similar to life on the Earth, if it re represented a second genesis or not. It might still be Earthly life. So on to the next, Europa. Whoops. Okay, Europa is a moon of Jupiter. It's about the size of our moon. It was suggested first by Voyager and then confirmed by Galileo to have a salty ocean within it. <clears throat> and the geology on the surface is very strongly suggestive that water once, if not at present, um, came close to the surface. This looks like ice flows that you might see uh, on a frozen lake. So this was very tantalizing. Of course, the Galileo mission didn't have a, uh, a high-gain antenna to work with. It didn't open, so there wasn't a lot of imaging done. We'd, we haven't covered the surface of Europa like we've covered all the moons in the Saturn system with the Cassini mission. So there's a lot we don't know about the surface of Europa, but a major <clears throat> issue about Europa that makes it difficult is that it is bathed in an intense magnetic environment and it is, has very high levels of uh, radiation uh, beaming down on it. And this radiation destroys organic materials on its surface. They, an organic compound put on its surface would last somewhere between tens of hours to maybe, if you're lucky, a few years. Um, and so it's just not the best place to go, in my opinion, in the opinion of uh, a growing community of people to go look for life. Uh, it would be very difficult. It even kills the spacecraft that you send there. Um, it kills the electronics. Now, one optimistic and recent development has been the discovery of sporadic plumes, uh, and I'll say a lot about plumes with the next body, <clears throat> a plume of material seen uh, above the surface of Europa, at least seen from the Earth, and uh, it could be plumes like those coming from Saturn's moon Enceladus. So the mission, the next mission going back to Europa, and there is one, in fact, there may be two very expensive missions to go uh, finish the work of Galileo in, in uh, mapping the surface and doing what it should have done, bringing the level of understanding of Europa up to the same level we have of Enceladus at Saturn. Uh, and if there's a plume, um, there will be instruments that can measure the composition of it. Um, so we'll see, how, uh, we'll see how that goes. But then, of course, there are the results of the Cassini mission at Saturn, which has two very special moons. I'm running out of time. Um, and they are Titan, which is Saturn's largest moon, and until Cassini got there, was the largest single expanse of unexplored terrain that we had remaining in our solar system. And now we've explored it and we've covered it. Uh, and then, of course, Enceladus, which is a small icy moon, a tenth the size of Titan. And because Cassini has been blessed with a perfectly running spacecraft and almost I think all of its original instruments have been operational for over a decade. We know a great deal about both these places. Uh, Titan is <clears throat> about the size of the US. It's enshrouded in a haze made of organic material. We've known that for a very long time. It has an atmosphere that's like Earth's. It's largely molecular nitrogen, like what's in this room. Its surface pressure is 50% greater than the pressure we have in this room. Uh, its thermal structure is similar to our atmosphere. 
Uh, it's just different in some fundamental ways. First of all, it's very cold. It's about 300 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. Uh, and its atmosphere is suffused with, as I said, uh, organic compounds like methane and ethane and propane and so on. And those compounds, in fact, they're broken up, especially methane, by radiation, ultraviolet radiation, and, <clears throat> and they end up forming haze. Uh, the carbon is released from the methane, and the carbons form these long structures, <clears throat> and they form the haze that completely enshrouds. It's 200 kilometers thick uh, global shroud of haze. <clears throat> um, uh, and we knew about, of course, this haze. In fact, on Voyager, we couldn't see down to the surface because of the haze, but we equipped our cameras with special filters that allowed us to see the surface. And so this is one of our images. It's been processed somewhat to bring out features. You could see around the edges, it's very hazy because we're still, you have to look through a long path length along the edges. But you could see the surface somewhat. This was one of our early images. It was very hard to make out. Um, but it, but um, we got global views of, of uh, Titan with our cameras. And then also Cassini carried a radar instrument. And the radar instrument did an even better job because it had no trouble seeing down to the surface. And here's a radar image of one of the dark areas in the equatorial region of Saturn, of Titan, like in that area here. Well, this is what that looks like. It's covered with dunes. These are dunes made of fine-grained organic materials. They're about two kilometers distant from one another. They're about 100 meters high. Uh, they're longitudinal dunes. They're aligned in the direction of the wind. And that tells you that the winds are bi-directional. They come from two directions. And obviously, it has to be dry enough uh, in order to loft particles and form dunes. So in fact, the dry conditions were very puzzling because theoretical models told from the results of Voyager that we should find liquid hydrocarbons on the surface. Uh, and so this was early in the mission. We didn't see anything, and it was very odd. But of course, we were there for a long time. And we got finally to see that the liquid hydrocarbons were present, but they had gone to the poles. And this is one of our most recent images, taken, I think, just a few months ago, showing this region at the North Pole, because it's spring now in the northern hemisphere of Saturn. Uh, and these regions, this is, these are um, large bodies of liquid methane on the surface of Titan, and these are smaller lakes. This, this, let's see, this here is one body, okay? And if you took Titan and you scaled it up to the size of the Earth, that would be the size of the Mediterranean. And now I'm gonna show you a radar image of this guy over here, and that's this. And you could see channels leading down into this body of fluid. Uh, it looks like the coast of Maine. Somebody might want to go there someday. Um, it's a beautiful example of a liquid methane sea on the surface of, of uh, Titan. Uh, and, of, and it is now believed, separate issue, it's now believed that Titan also has an interior liquid water ocean. Um, but uh, that is not what makes it so compelling. What makes it so compelling are these seas of liquid hydrocarbon. Uh, and even though... <clears throat> Those exist. We, it's hard to imagine uh, Titan is offering a good chance for looking for life as we know it, but it's certainly the go-to place in our solar system to study organic materials, native organic materials in situ, uh, in their native environment, something we can't do anymore on the Earth because of the oxygen has destroyed them all. 
And it would be a site that might offer alternate chemistries, like maybe methane instead of water is the matrix, but that seems a stretch. At temperatures of 300 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, chemical reactions would proceed very slowly. Um, so anyway, I'm nearing the end, and I haven't told you the best part. <clears throat> okay, I'm sorry, Stuart, but I got to do this. So anyway, the, the, the best moon of all, of course, is uh, Enceladus. This is not meant to be a threat, by the way. <clears throat> I would never want to show this to Donald Trump. But anyway, so it's about the size of England, and it has four prominent fractures crossing its south pole. Uh, you can see here, and um, you can see even better here. This is really challenging. Uh, okay, there's three screens, two thingamajigs. Um, so anyway, these are four fractures, and this whole, this is the south polar terrain. The south pole is about right there, and this is, this region is circumscribed by a, a chain, a continuous chain of uh, mountains and folds and ridges. Uh, and we found there's no craters here. That means it's very young. And we found when we put, and they found a lot of heat coming out of this region, which is very puzzling because it is the South Pole after all. Uh, and we found when we put ourselves um, in position to look over the South Pole of Enceladus, but in the direction of the sun, which is a geometry that highlights uh, the presence of small particles. We saw plumes and, and geysers, actually. And here's a bunch of pictures we took. Uh, this is uh, in 2005. That's when we first saw that the plume we had discovered earlier that year actually was a series of several dozen geysers. And over the years, we took bunches of them. This, in fact, was done in my research group. We just planned an entire survey of the South Polar terrain so we could see what relationship these geysers had to the surface features. And we, in fact, found that all these geysers, and there's over 100 of them, actually, they're erupting from these fractures in the form, like fissure vul volcanism you might see uh, in Iceland. Um, so this, of course, was very, uh, very exciting. And um, these geysers also form a plume if you take an image like this and you colorize it in the right way, you colorize the gray light, the, the, the faint gray levels, gray light levels, you, um, you get a plume. So Cassini, over its life there, has flown through this plume about a dozen times and sampled its, uh, the composition of this plume. So we know the composition of the particles. We know the particles are accompanied by vapor. Okay, what do we know? Uh, just jump to the chase here. We know that the vapor in the plume is 90% water. We know that there are compounds like carbon dioxide, ammonia, methane, to the tune of 1% by volume. Are you noticing hydrogen, oxygen, carbon? Okay. Um, we don't know what the mass 28 uh, feature is. It could be any one of these compounds. We found light hydrocarbons, and we have evidence that there are carbon, hydrocarbons that are even larger. And we think those could be the parent molecules, the larger molecules of the light species that we see. We found that the, the, there's a size segregation. The bigger particles are near the surface. This is in the geysers. And the bigger particles are salty. Salt, salinity comparable to that of the Earth's oceans. This tells us that the salt-rich particles originate as droplets from a salty liquid reservoir. And with time, we came to find evidence of silica particles, which uh, we found silica particles, which is evidence that 
the um, evidence for hydrothermal activity on the seafloor. So I hope you're getting excited. <laughs> because, because we were. So this, the environment, the kind of prototypical environment we had in mind was a famous hydrothermal field called, called Lost City. It was the first so-called low-temperature uh, thermal uh, hydrothermal field. It was only 90 degrees C, and this is what we think we're looking at on the surface of Titan uh, Enceladus. Not the black smoker types, where the temperature is 500 degrees centigrade, but 90 degrees centigrade is more. We're thinking these are carbonate structures found at Lost City. Um, and we also know that the ocean now is global. Uh, I won't go into details here, but there's, and it's thickest under the South Pole. Um, so what we have found uh, meets all the requirements of a, um, a habitable zone. And this just shows you detail of the, what we think each fracture is, where the heat is formed by condensation. The heat emerges because of the condensation of latent heat. Uh, and you have geyser vapor and particles. The smaller ones, the salt-free ones, escape to form Saturn Z-ring, uh, and so on. Lots of details I could go into. Um, <clears throat> so this moon presents to us the most promising place in all the solar system at this point in time to test our ideas about the origin of life and to see whether or not um, life has actually even arisen in, uh, in this place. Um, and what approaches are we going to take? Well, we would carry on our next mission, we would carry mass spectrometers. These are instruments that just can tell you across the breadth of, of a spectrum in mass that is from very light to heavy, just what kind of molecules are there. We might be able to ask the question, uh, do we have any amino acids there? Are there any nucleic acids there? Are there fatty acids there? Uh, some of these substances can be produced without biology, so we need to really be careful about our search. We need to search for other signatures. We would target amino acids uh, and possibly other um, other biomolecules to look for non-abiotic patterns in chorality. Uh, and we have such an instrument, in fact, is being developed at UC Berkeley to do this. Uh, and we could look for, I guess I, this is, I'm jumping over this one, but basically I said this already, that we know that Enceladus meets the formal requirements for a habitable zone. It's got all that it takes, but we want to know this, and we want to know is the ocean actually inhabited. And the thing about Enceladus better than any other, because we know it now after 13 years of investigation, we understand it better than any other candidate habitable zone in the solar system. So I have been clamoring for a long time now, uh, saying this is the place we need to go. So, and there's, I, I don't have time, there's a whole lot of stuff that we could do. Um, uh, I just mentioned some of it. Um, we could look for parent molecules. We could look for disequilibria. We could look for high temperature alteration. That's pretty simple. You look for the isotope of a simple compound or a simple uh, element, and the ratio of those isotopes can often tell you about the temperature. We could see is the temperature hot enough to, to yield enough chemical energy for biology to exist. We could look for bio biologically produced abundance patterns. I think I have a diagram here. Uh, abiotic, meaning not by, made by biology, if you look for, at a type of molecule like an amino acid, going from the light amino acids to the heavy, if it was not produced by biology, it might look like that, but biology would have a particular pattern. Um, and then if you um, 
had a different biology, you might have a different pattern. So these are the kinds of things that we uh, might possibly do. Uh, and then, of course, we'd like to look for chorality. Um, and we can do that again. There are instruments that can do it. If we find really that there's a predominant handedness in anything that we sample, and it really was a strong handedness, first of all, we know right away something's out of equilibrium and it's creating that. And we don't know, at least at this point, that there's any process that really abiotically produces a strong chiral signature. So if we found something like that, that would be very suggestive of life. And then there's a whole bunch of other things. We could search for a sufficient level of complexity in molecular constituents. I went through that little spiel earlier about the kinds of experiments that are being done on computers to investigate the origin of complexity. But as I said, we think that life has done this too. Over billions of years, you could get things as complex as you and I. So we are trying to think of the ways where you could actually develop a metric to determine if something that we find is complex enough to signify that it was created by life. Uh, and then we could look for those uh, polyelectrolytes, I told you, that might be uh, diagnostic of life. Uh, and one of my favorites, because there's always this question of how confident will we be if we ever find something we think is life and we come forward and tell the world we found life and then it's not right? I mean, that would just be horrible. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it would be worse than horrible, but horrible serves for right now. So we want to be sure. And I'm, I'm the one saying, and a lot of people don't like this. I don't know why they don't like it, but I think the best thing to do is go search for organisms. I mean, if I could show you a video clip of, a, of an organism that we picked up in the material that we collected from the plume of Enceladus, uh, and I show, see, and you can see it move, and you can see a bunch of them move, and, and they're clearly alive, and they're clearly not just bits of dirt floating around. I mean, that would be an unambiguous sign that we had life. It would tell you nothing about biochemistry, but we would know for sure that um, it would have life. I don't know why you're laughing, but anyway. <laughs> it's not funny to me, I think. <laughs> So anyway, um, what kinds of missions could we do? We could do another Saturn orbiter with multiple fly-throughs. That's like doing a Cassini mission, smaller, very focused, with instrumentation that was deliberately designed to conduct the kind of experiments I just described and look for the kind of characteristics I've just spent a long time telling you about. You could do better. You could go into orbit around Enceladus, and you could continuously fly through the plume every orbit. You could collect a lot more material that way. And, of course, you could land and let the stuff fall on you. I forgot to mention that 96% of the mass that's coming out in these geysers, the solid mass, is falling back down. It's all, always snowing at the south pole of Enceladus. Could it be snowing microbes on Enceladus? I mean, like, how cool would that be? <laughs> so anyway, um, but I have to say, after all is said and done, that the mission that I would like most to see, I won't see it, but maybe someday your children or grandchildren might get to go visit in the far future, might go back to the Saturn system and visit the Enceladus Interplanetary Geyser Park <laughs> in a spacecraft not unlike the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> Thank you very much. <clears throat> Yeah.
10 minutes late. Let's talk about it. Let's talk. Okay, we go over here. So, uh, what's this about the Starship and uh, <laughs> Star Trek? So that came in kind of the, like snowing microbes there at the end. And then I pulled Star Trek on you. Yeah, yeah, yes. so Star no, Trek. I got, I, that was my scene out of the 2009 Star Trek. I was a consultant on the movie. Okay. I met J.J. Abrams at um, TED. I think at the same TED I met Kevin Kelly a long time ago, and um, he invited me to be a consultant. So that's, I suggested that. I didn't get a penny for it, by the way. <laughs> but they used it. They liked it. And you had fun, it sounds I, like. Yeah, I did. I had fun. I got to see Chris Pine get the crap kicked out of him. I went to go... <laughs> I went to go see a scene. I wanted to go see a scene being filmed on the bridge, but right. by the, when I was there in L.A. at the time, it wasn't the bridge. It was the, the bar scene where the young Captain Kirk gets into trouble and gets beat up. Bar scenes always have fights, it seems like. <laughs> so Dr. Travis Dirks asks, um, what would we do if we found life anywhere else? And what's sort of the protocol that NASA has... Uh, presumably prepared for you know, what they, now? They have no protocol. They have no protocol. Uh, well, no, not really. They're just getting to grips now with what, how we're going to go about doing it, <laughs> because it's really like imminent. You know, Carl Sagan used to say that you know we were the generation that could do this. He was mm -hmm. referring to his generation, and we could really find life. Well, we could really, really find life. That's two reallys. Uh, <laughs> and so. Um, but, you know, I mean it when I say we're just getting to grips now with how we go about doing it, because it's very hard. It's not like saying, I want to go look at the craters on, you know, a moon around Uranus or something like that, and I'm just going to carry a camera, and I know how to do that, and I know how to study craters. We're, we're still, can't you tell, we're, we're groping. We're trying to figure out what's the best way to do this. You say imminent. Define imminent. That well, I mean, we're talking about the next Thompson. missions. The yeah. Next mission. Oh, yeah. There's a group. There's two groups that are putting in a proposal to what's called the New Frontiers program at NASA. They're coming. They're proposing to do a mission back to uh, each proposing to do a mission back to Enceladus with the express purpose of searching for life. Mm -hmm. We've done a lot of other stuff at Saturn and at Enceladus. We don't have to redo it. We just have to find now if the plume, this obviously uh, this accessible habitable zone is um, if we can find life in it. So that's happening. And I have to say, in the last two years, a year and a half, I've been approached by no fewer than five people uh, over email um, claiming that they knew people of high net worth uh, who would be interested in funding a private mission back to Enceladus if I were interested in getting involved or something like that. So there's a lot of interest in doing this, and I'm very happy to see it, but, we're, but I mean it when I say we're just now getting to grips with trying to figure out how exactly to do it. Is it on NASA's list of missions to take on, <coughs> or does it take a Well, it is fund? now. Uh -huh. It is now. We've been screaming about it for 10 years, and it finally sunk in. It takes that long. So, <clears throat> you know, if all goes well, it could launch when, and then how long does it take to get there and start discovering things? Well, I th no, I think the earliest launch could be like 2025 or something like that. Okay. Uh, it, we're, we're thinking um, these are the NASA-generated missions, mm -hmm. the proposals. We're, we wouldn't get there until 2035, 2034, or something like that, to Enceladus. So the 2035s could be a big yes or a big maybe? or is You it could never say no. You can't prove a negative. That's what I was about to ask. You yeah, can't prove a negative. Mm 
Okay. So just because we didn't find any life wouldn't mean that life isn't there. It just meant that we didn't detect it in the plume. But it could be. It just depends. It depends if life is there. It depends how large a signature is. Mm -hmm. is, is it so feeble that it's wiped out? It's signatures that we would detect remotely or wiped out by, um, mm -hmm. not remotely, but that we would detect in the plume mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> are wiped out by other abiotic signatures. So, you know, it just depends. So Reed asks, if we find evidence of that, how would we know if it's similar to life here, uh, the way you described it, life as we know it, or that it's quite different? What would be indicators either way? Well, if we found, we went searching for amino acids and we found that it used, that the ones that were predominant, you know, the abundance pattern looked like the abundance pattern uh, that we have here on Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, if they were chiral in this, well, I don't think it had to be chiral in the same way, but if, if they were um, handed, there was a handedness, if nucleic acids were the same, you know, all the, all the modules, if all the modules are the well, same. One of your diagrams showed sort of the abundance, uh, abundance is a pattern different than would be just chemically generated, and life as we know it has an abundance pattern. You yes. also suggested there's <clears throat> other abundance patterns that might show up that would not be a signature of life as we know it, but of some other maybe, maybe, process. Maybe. I mean, there are amino acids. The building blocks of our kind of life are everywhere. There's amino acids in meteorites. They find precursor molecules to amino acids in molecular clouds. They're doing this with radio telescopes. They find that, I don't know if they found nucleic acids in astrophysical environments, but um, I know that they can irradiate certain compounds mm -hmm. um, with ultraviolet radiation and produce the, um, the nucleobases that way. So they're common. They're just astrophysically common. So it could be that we find something, and this is an important point, it could be we find life on Enceladus that has exactly the same biochemistry we have. Mm -hmm. But, and here's an important point when you talk about, for example, Mars, maybe even Europa, the further out you go in the solar system from Earth, mm -hmm. the very much less a chance there is that there has been an exchange of material. Well, so it's not, it's not out of the question. We could yeah. find on Enceladus an identical biochemistry, but it still is a second genesis because you couldn't get a tardigrade, for example, uh -huh. like the heroes of extremophiles, you know. Right, right. Um, you couldn't get one of those all the way to Enceladus. That would be highly unlikely. So um, Remind us why tardigrades are heroes. I don't know. They're just bitching little bugs, man. They're just... <laughs> They can, they, they can shrivel up, they can last, it seems, for thousands of years without mm -hmm. water, without, they can live in just extreme, it's, they're just amazing. And they're, they're just, adorable when you look at them. In a weird sort of way, yeah. We're talking about exobiology here, it's got to be weird, right? I guess. So We already have weird <laughs> stuff here, that's who's going to make it. So um, Art asks, expectable question, what do you think the chances are finding local life in a place like... Uh, finding what? Finding basically solar system source of life versus the now <clears throat> numerous exoplanets that we're looking at at a vast distance that we're you know, right. discovering not physically but other ways. Well, they don't have the benefit of ever having the opportunity to go sample. So they have to do it all remotely, and they would, you know, I think they will spend a lot of effort looking for things out of, e out of equilibrium, excuse me, like oxygen. That's mm -hmm. a big one. You know, if they mm -hmm. found oxygen 
very much out of equilibrium. Mm -hmm. They might say, you know, there's no, well, they, they might say there's no abiotic way that that could happen, so it must be biology. But here's, here's the thing, you know, there's always a downside, there's always a, a way in which it might not be the case. First, first, there could possibly be a way that oxygen goes out of equilibrium um, at the time we're looking at the body, maybe it's limited, um, and it, does, it may not signify life. And, and another thing is that for a long period of time of life on Earth, like two billion years, mm -hmm. I think it was about two billion years, there was no oxygen. It was all, um, there was no, a, a photosynthesis had started, but it really didn't produce a lot of oxygen until about two billion years had gone by. So we're talking about bugs, and yet life, like I said, was but probably... The, the gases of the early Earth would still have been recognizable from a distance as being out of chemical equilibrium, wouldn't they? Um, I so don't know. You wouldn't I don't see oxygen, but you would see, you wouldn't see... Um, yeah, but the, what, what did we have? We had methane, we had mm -hmm. ammonia. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see things like that. On, I, I don't know. I mean, I mm -hmm. don't know the answer to your question. Mm -hmm. Things out of equilibrium is definitely the kind of things they would look for. Right, right. But I, I feel that we are in a very much better situation because we will actually sample. It's nearby and we can sample. Kevin Kelly asks, uh, this is kind of a long now question, what is, <clears throat> what is the most uh, distant time of, of completion of the sort of longest duration of any of our current space exploration projects? What are the, the, the ones that have the, you know, the, the sort of longest horizon to... Um, I don't quite know. You mean like Voyager? Yeah, Voyager. remind us about Voyager. Tell, tell us the Voyager Well, story. Voyager was launched in 1977, the year that Star Wars came out. Okay. And it spent the 1980s crossing the solar system. Right. And then it left the solar system. I mean, it went beyond the magnetic bubble of the sun into the interstellar medium. The magnetic bubble mm. of the sun. Yes. That'd make a good title of an album. No, I was just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, but it, and it's still actually taking data. I mean, because it's, it's instruments on board that measure the mm -hmm. flux of charged particles and magnetic fields, it was able to deduce that it had passed beyond the magnetic influence of the sun into the interstellar medium. So that's been going on since 1977, and it will go on, it will continue to go on. Um, is there a new one? Like you mean? Well, New Horizons will continue to go on. I don't know that it'll keep me making measurements. How um, long do we expect to keep getting data from Voyager? Until it's uh, it's radioisotope, uh, mm -hmm. you know, electric electricity generators die out, and there's no more power for it. And I that's forget. Decades, or do we know? Huh? How long will that take? We don't know. It could be another 20 years, or on that order. I know. So is the Voyager story being told in... in the oh, yeah. Well, this is the 40th anniversary. Uh -huh. And so there's been a lot of activity uh, remembering what Voyager was all about because it really was, I, I still say, it was the most iconic planetary mission we ever mm -hmm. flew. It was the Apollo 11 of the planetary program. Mm -hmm. There were other missions that went before it. There were other missions that even went to the outer solar system, at least Jupiter and Saturn before it. But it it really showed us what the outer solar system was like. And in doing that, it opened up the entire solar system to us because that's where most of the mass in our solar system is. And then, of course, it turned back and took a picture of the Earth, you know, the pale blue dot. And then it continued with a message from Earth. 
and it's now transformed us. It's redefined us into an interstellar species. So it really was, it just resonated with people, the whole human adventure of it, mm -hmm. and Homer's Odyssey, you know, the 12 mm -hmm. years across the solar system. Um, so there's going to be a documentary about that in, on August 23rd. It's going to appear on PBS. And I'm proud to say that uh, it will be followed by a 20-minute mini-documentary which uh, features yours truly, mm -hmm. Going in Search of Life. <laughs> and, and it's... Uh, All right. And this, did, did this we is just called. Did you see a preview of that? No, <laughs> no, you didn't. Oh, oh, this. Um, and it's called Second Genesis. Second Genesis. That's the name of it. I thought that was a very provocative title. I hope it gets a lot of people worked <laughs> <laughs> up. It'll get you in trouble, that's all. Yeah. Uh, Andy Lee asked about this chirality, this left handedness, right handedness. Um, <clears throat> is. Uh, life plausible that has an opposite handedness to the life that we have? Oh, yes, because we think, it makes sense to me, it was just a statistical thing. You know, the moment... A frozen accident. A oh, a frozen accident. Is that the terminology? Yeah. Okay, good. Somewhere along the line, it just happened to be this, and then... It's it's, there was two choices. It could go left, it could go right, and in one case well, it went yeah, left, and the other... Two roads to yeah. in the yellow wood. Yeah. We went down the right-handed one, but life could have gone down the left-handed one. Why not? And then how would that life and our life interact? Their microorganisms, those microorganism, microorganisms and our microorganisms meet. Well, that's, that's interesting. I wonder if like one could eat the other. I never thought about that. Maybe, maybe that's, a, oh, that's an interesting idea. I don't know. They'll probably eat but not mate, I suspect. Is, you know, I don't know. I haven't, th I haven't thought that far. Um, looking for your... So... You sort of started with the, um, what if life is not a bug but a feature? What if life is not one-off but common? And you seem to be suggesting that if we find just one other instance, then it's common. Yeah. So one other instance of an independent origin, yes. Mm -hmm. Of an independent mm. origin, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> See how that plays out. What if there's just two? What if there's just two? Why would it be common? How, why, how could there be just two? <laughs> Say more. What? There's so many potential places where it could, it, it could uh, occur that if there's two, then that equals many. It's just, you know, it's like the existence theorem being proven or something like okay. that. It's like, mm -hmm. it's like the spell being broken. You can't say anymore if you find one other instance of it that... Um, I mean, that just, that seems even more absurd than to say it's just one, you know? <laughs> if there's two... <laughs> right, that is. <laughs> I mean, if it could happen, if it's not special, you know, really, really special, then, um, and two would, would do it, would tell mm. you it wasn't special. <laughs> well, this would be... No, really, but think about it. Is, there's all the, I've told you, all the, the basic building blocks are mm. astrophysically common. Mm -hmm. You know, they're everywhere. So, uh, and, and we don't like thinking, and I just don't think it's possible. Our astrophysical scientific investigations tell us that, you know, what's, what we have here is everywhere. So if, you know, if we have the basic building blocks here in our solar system, uh, and we see them in other molecular clouds across mm -hmm. the galaxy and in other solar systems, then the, then the same things happen. I mean, not in every case, but there's just so many, many 
planets, the numbers are staggering. It had to happen more than once. So it sounds like you would be surprised if it turns out that it was, it is a one-off. Well, we're never going to know, so, you know. But, I, so I don't think I'm going to be surprised. Part of the, the immediacy and, you know, part of what Carl Sagan was pointing at and you're pointing at is in this century, we're going to be looking at some likely places nearby. We're going to do some pretty serious spectral analysis of of potentially atmospheres and other these distant exoplanets. So we're, we're suddenly getting a lot more data uh, to, or it's been speculation and modeling and all of that for a long time. Now we're getting serious data coming in. And if it's all negative, 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 kind of like SETI has been up to this point. At a certain point you go, what if we're alone? I know that that, is, uh, that will be a possibility, but mm -hmm. you, then you have to examine, did we really go about it the right way? Mm -hmm. um, I, you know now there's a big infusion of money to do SETI in a much bigger way, to keep the data, mm -hmm. to have it there to be examined by very sophisticated algorithms. A lot of stuff they just weren't able to do the first mm -hmm. time around because there wasn't any funding. So um, now we're finally, we've got multiple targets to go look, uh, and, and reasons, because we do know, like at Enceladus, we know, the, we know why this particular body intrigues us. We've mm -hmm. already measured. We know the basic elements are there. We even think that the basic geochemical energy requirements are being met. So mm -hmm. um, maybe there's no life there at all, but it's really worth checking and... Mm -hmm. um, and I think we stand a chance, if there is life there, of finding it. You've probably thought through some of what happens then. Um, take the strongest case. You, you, you have microorganisms, uh, ideally living ones, uh, snowing down on our lander on Enceladus. Well, they might not be alive by that time, but who cares? Uh, the, 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 yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, they care. <laughs> we won't care. <laughs> well, alive or dead, there's microorganisms uh, and it's in uh, the late 2030s, it sounds like. When we get there and we discover this, then what happens? We all celebrate. It's fun. It's <laughs> we celebrate, but what else do we do? I mean, this, well, is, I, I think this I, is one of those big jumps. It's like when you know, Hubble discovered there were other galaxies and stuff like that. Suddenly, scale mm -hmm. shifted totally. Um, who we are, what we are, where oh, we are, okay. all that stuff. So, you know, go cosmic here. I think I'm going to go cosmic, and I've thought of this. I, do, I think scientifically it would be just almost cataclysmic. I think that people would get very excited about the topic. Mm -hmm. We'd have lots of missions to go and, and you know, land on the surface, really mm -hmm. get substantial samples, even maybe bring some back to Earth. Mm -hmm. um, that would be a very, very exciting day. I don't think that it would have as big of an effect culturally. Hmm. Say why? Well, because I, I just think people don't think much of microbes. They, <laughs> microbes, <laughs> microbes, get no right. microbes get no respect. So. Right. If it's not <laughs> about our size and carrying That's weapons, right. we That's don't right. care. So I, 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 think, I think that the moment the moment that really would be a cataclysm that, you know, and, and it's depicted in, mm -hmm. in Contact, the movie mm -hmm. Contact, and in the book, which is even better, right. is if we ever find an indisputable signal from an intelligent organization, uh, an intelligent civilization. I think that would, that would be what That's people really have to come jump. to grips with, um, with, with the fact that we're not unique and there's others out there that, you know, have evolved to our state. And, and in fact, if we ever hear from another uh, civilization, 
uh, chances are excellent that they are well beyond us. If you just work out the numbers, like work through the, the Drake uh -huh. equation, uh -huh. that's how it works out. In order for us to even hear signals from someone else, it means, uh, it means that they are well advanced beyond us. They've had to, they've had to learn things like how to um, manipulate the energy of their star uh -huh. in order to build their civilization. So there's speculation by some of the big thinkers lately that we should not be advertising where we are. And oh, I have no patience for that. Say what? <laughs> what? You, you, you haven't read The Three-Body Problem, or you have not didn't believe <laughs> What? The, the book, The Three-Body Problem, is all about seriously hostile. Uh, I, but doesn't that sound like something that would be put out by the NRA? <laughs> I mean... Seriously, how, how paranoid can you get? The universe has been around for 13.8 billion years, okay? okay? So plenty of time for, or for civilizations to, be, to live long, you know, develop and advance if that's what is possible, if that's what they do. And I just think, A, they would have been here by now if we were that tantalizing and if we were that interesting. Uh, and B, I think there's a filter that only the organisms that evolved to be uh, a lot more benign and a lot, more, um, a lot less violent and destructive of each other uh, than we are, mm -hmm. would be able to amass that kind of effort to come to knock on our door and do damage to us. I just think it's silly. I think it's silly. I don't spend any time thinking of extraterrestrial contact in that sense. Like, they come mm -hmm. here and they probe and they you know, do what they do. <laughs> I don't worry about that. I think we'll end there. That's a really hopeful note. Thank you. <laughs> this seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. You can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.